beautiful people and welcome back to another episode of Wildcard Conversations, my little podcast where I pull random cards with thought-provoking questions for my wonderful guests. I am your host Katja Bavendam and I am so grateful for the diverse group of friends, acquaintances and strangers who come on here with open hearts and minds. What they all have in common is that they have wisdom to share, knowledge to drop, stories to tell and I am so happy to hold space for them, listen to them, sing their praises, cry and laugh with them, and share a little bit of myself as we go along. On today's episode, I am joined by storyteller and history lover Chris B, who has asked me not to use his full name, and on this podcast we love and respect boundaries. After giving me a behind-the-scenes look into a storytelling event, Chris told me about books that impacted his life and moved him to tears. We talked about history being nuanced and how this nuance often gets lost in the Hollywood version of events. Chris also told me about that time he got to see Hamilton the Musical for free with the original cast and why he doesn't remember the actual performance. We covered a lot of ground and it was one of those meandering conversations that I personally enjoy so much. Of course, I hope that you find just as much joy and value in it, and if you do and happen to come across something that looks like a five star or a follow button, don't be shy. Hit those puppies. Thank you so much for your support and for listening, and now please sit back, relax, or enjoy your run or your walk. I'm not telling you what to do, but please do enjoy the show. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining. Hi. Good to see you. It's been a minute. Yes, it has. It's been a minute. I'll start with context on how I know you. You, at some point, taught in the same school as my ex-wife, who was an English high school teacher, and you were a history high school teacher. Mm -hmm. And uh, we all became friends, hung out a lot. I always enjoyed hanging out with you. You were always down to support us, including doing a little scene with us on the reality TV show that we were on. And that might have been mm -hmm. the last time we actually hung out in person. But when I think of you, I always think of that moment as just sitting in that restaurant and awkwardly pretending to have a real conversation. But that was super fun and appreciated. It actually was a lot of fun. It was. I think doing that show with friends was always extra fun just to kind of not just be alone in that ridiculous situation. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned before we started recording that yeah. it turned out it didn't ruin your life. Were you like really worried how you were going to come off? I was worried. You know, I, I work in a conservative field. I work in a conservative place. So I just, I really had to think about that. And it's kind of sad that these are things that some people have to think about. And I think for some of my friends who like live in a gay bubble and, you know, maybe work in industries like advertising where it's not like that, it's a no brainer for them. But I really had to think about it. And I think I said no at first. And then I was thinking it over and I was just like, man, I think I'm going to regret it more if I say no than if I say yes. So that's kind of what made me change my mind. So it was mostly about you being gay and just working in a conservative field. Was that the main yeah. worry? Yeah. And then also the storyline, you know, which was about uh, bodily fluids. <laughs> it, <laughs> <Yeah>. just, <laughs> it just seemed like it was like maybe too risque for some people, but it, it wasn't. And also it was a TLC show, which inherently can be a little, I don't know. They like to turn things into a freak show sometimes. So, you know, if we had asked you to be on a serious documentary, maybe you would have been down right away. But we were like, hey can you be on the TLC show with us and we can ask you for your sperm? <laughs> so understandable okay. that that's not an immediate yes. So here we are, a divorce and a pandemic later, and I haven't seen you in ages, but I've yeah. been following along on Instagram. I, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I always see, enjoy your face popping up. And I'm always grateful for you reminding us of the greatness of Aaliyah, because she shall never be forgotten. <laughs> And, okay, good, good, good. and then recently I saw that you participated in a storytelling event, which I've always mm -hmm. loved storytelling and listening to stories, telling stories. And I was like, hey, if he's good at telling stories, maybe you can tell some stories on my podcast. And you said yes. And thank you. I'll, I'll try. We'll see. Well, you know, there's do you always... listen to the moth? I do. I used to listen to it pretty 
consistently and then I kind of fell off but now I have a reason to get back in there are you gonna be on one of the featured on one of the podcasts or was it more of a local life event uh well they host those local events and then I guess they have their own network of how it makes it to air or how it you know you could get recognized on a national level or whatever so I again because the nature of my field and the nature of my story I signed the waiver that it could be recorded, but I didn't sign the waiver that it could air on um, radio. Okay. So it's not going to air on radio, which I'm a little bummed about because it went very well. I was surprised. Do you want to tell your story again here? <laughs> um, no. <laughs> Fair enough. But I can tell you the story about doing the story because that is a story in and of itself. Well, go for it. Oh, right now? Yeah, why not? So it's funny, like I've been listening to The Moth for years. Like, I mean, as long as I can remember living in New York City and having a radio, like I, I've always heard stories. I don't always like intentionally be like, oh my God, it's Wednesday night, eight o'clock. I need to be listening to The Moth right now. But if it's on, I'll listen. And I've definitely like brought it up as a podcast. So my friend Mike started going to some story slams that they have in Brooklyn at the Bell House, which are really fun. Like, even if you don't, I've never heard of the moth. They're actually like super, super fun. And so we went a few times. We even got asked to judge one time, which was its own fun experience. And then at the beginning of this year, he told me, he's like, oh, well, I'm I'm going to present. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, do you want to come? And I was like, sure, I'll come. And I knew how it worked. You don't just get to present. You show up, you have to fill out like your name and stuff. And they put it in a hat or whatever you know there could be 60 people who want to go but they're only going to have time for 10 i was like okay mike you're gonna go but you you're probably not gonna go he ended up getting called and it's funny because the whole night i hadn't seen him in a long time so i'm trying to like catch up with him and he's trying to go over his story in his head because they don't let you read it off a piece of paper you have to present it just as is so I was like, man, why is Mike being a dickhead? And I didn't realize because like he really was intent on going. He did get called and he went. And so that kind of inspired me. You know, and Mike, I wouldn't say he killed it, but he did a good job. He definitely did a good job. So I was like, man, I think I can do this. And so they had a advertisement and the they tell you what the category is. And the category was growth. And of course, you can interpret that however you want. So I had a good story in my head and it, it definitely was like a coming of age story. And I had the story in my head and I and I wanted to go and Mike was really encouraging too. He's like, oh, um, you know, I'll, I'll be there. And I ended up not being able to write it until the day of. Like I had it in my head for like a week, but I couldn't write it down for whatever reason, just because of work. And so I finally wrote it down at the end of my work day. I printed it. I drove right to the venue and got there at like five o'clock, even though it didn't open till seven, because I just stayed in my car trying to memorize it, but also like not memorize it because you don't want to get up there and just like read a script that's in your head. So when we finally got into the venue and I put my, my ticket in, I understood what Mike was going through a few weeks before because like he and another friend are like talking to me and they're like, and I'm like, no, 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 you need to shut up. I'm trying to go through this in my head. You can't talk to me. So you got and, to be a, um, a dickhead in return. I was totally a dickhead in return because whatever they were saying was going one ear out the other. Cause I was like, I got to do this. My biggest fear was that I was not, I, I was very worried that I wasn't going to get called for two reasons. One, because this was such a monumentous effort like emotionally of just like getting myself in that headspace and just having so many nerves. And then two, to be on pins and needles for the whole night waiting to be called, that would just be, again, just too much of an adrenaline rush. So thankfully I got called fourth, which I think is a good sweet spot of like, I saw what came before me, but not too early where like, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. So I get called and what's funny how they do it, when they call you, you go up and you wait by the side and then the MC kind of like does their thing. They're doing crowd control. And then I think also in between stories, they read audience because they'll ask the audience like silly questions throughout and then read their responses. So they're doing that for five minutes. So like you're at the end of the stage, getting your last thoughts in 
you're not allowed to have anything on you in the sense like you can't have a crumpled piece of paper out. The adrenaline is something I can only compare to skydiving. Interesting. And, I, and I've skydived before. So I, it's the same adrenaline where you're like, I don't think I can do this. This is scary. I'm going to die. So I go up and I had a lot of reservations about my story because my story was a bit risque, actually. And when they were going over the rules, they're like, oh, your story is too lewd or you have too many curses. That's not cool, bro. They went over all these rules that I didn't realize. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to get banned from the mall. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. Because my coming of age story was was like a typical coming of age story. I had to deal with all those universal themes. So when I went up there, I decided right kind of on the fly, like, let me start off with something, not a joke, because like, you're not supposed to go up there and tell jokes necessarily. But I was like, let me just start off with something silly and see how the crowd reacts. And they reacted well. They seemed to understand what I was trying to do. So from that point on, I was like, all right, I'm just going to go balls to the wall and just do this the way that I think it should be done. And what's funny is that in my head, I had moments in the story where I was going to potentially pause if there was an audience reaction. And some of those rang true, but like there were a few instances where I didn't think something was funny and the audience was reacting to something. So it was really cool. And I really, really enjoyed the process because... You know, like getting on, let's say, I don't know, a blog and writing like something that people can comment, that's its own thing. But I just thought the whole live storytelling format was an interesting environment where the story was changing as I was telling it based on how I felt everything was going on. And I just thought that was like an interesting thing that I, you don't really experience often. So set the stage for us a little bit. How many people were there approximately? There were probably like 150 people there. Okay, that's substantial. Yes. And how long uh -huh. was your story? So the rules are the story has to be five minutes or under. Once you go at five minutes, they ring a little warning bell. And then at six minutes, they kind of drag you off the stage. Got you. I yeah. recently did a stand-up comedy set and it was similar, but we got a little more, bit more grace because we took a comedy class and we were the graduates. So we weren't treated quite as harshly as someone just coming to a more serious event. But I get the like this... You're just up there on the stage and telling something and you just don't know. You might think you're meaningful and witty and funny and maybe the parts where you're expecting a big reaction, they're not hitting. And then, like you said, you're saying something that you didn't expect would get any reaction and the crowd goes wild. So it is uh -huh. an interesting experience. Did you also have a super bright light in your face where you basically couldn't see anyone? Uh, yes. So 100%. Super bright light. And my friend Mike told me that, but I'm like, oh, people are always exaggerating. But no, you you really don't see the audience. Which is also yeah. weird because usually when you're in a real life situation telling a story, you look into the people's faces who you're telling the story to. Was that the first time you've ever done any sort of performing on a stage? Pretty much. I've never, yeah, never was in like a drama club or a theater or anything like that. So this was definitely the first time doing something of that sort. I do work as a teacher. So to some extent, I'm, I'm used to public speaking, but it's different when it's your peers who are there voluntarily, as opposed to students who are your insubordinates and they're they're not necessarily there voluntarily it's also different yeah. if you're speaking about a history curriculum or about sex drugs and rock and roll in your youth <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah do you think you caught the bug the storytelling bug do, do you now want to like do it over and over again or are you just fine with this being a one-time experience no i i would like to do it again Okay. But similar to skydiving, I, I, I feel like you have gone skydiving. Mm -hmm, yeah, I yeah. have. Similar to skydiving, there's definitely a moment where you're like, I don't need to do that anytime soon. Yes. At least that's how I felt. Agree. Yeah. Like, yeah. want to do it again. That was definitely cool. Want to do it again yeah. at some point in my life. But that doesn't need to be on a <laughs> frequent basis. Yeah. So I would like to do it again. And actually, my friend Mike, who's who's a really cool dude, he kind of like organized his own grassroots storytelling thing. So he hosted one event at his apartment with like friends and interested parties. 
I've done that with him, which has been kind of fun. But I would like to do a Moth Story Slam again for sure. That is interesting. A little bit of behind the scenes of the storytelling slams of the world. All right. Are you ready to jump into this wild card question? Yes. Okay. So I have a card deck here that has six different categories. And they are dreams, life lessons, Mm -hmm. exposed, courage, beliefs, or self-awareness. Which one do you feel drawn to? I feel like Life Lessons is is calling my name. Okay. I shuffled them before, so I'm just going to grab the one that's on top. Okay. Oh, this might be good for you as a teacher. So the question is, what book has had a profound impact on your life and why? (laughs) So books are, are weird to me in the sense that I love books and there are books that speak to me. But I'm also the type, like if someone asked you, like, what's your favorite song? You can't just name one because there's really not one that you're putting at the top. There's like dozens, if not hundreds that are up there in no particular order. So I feel the same way with books. There's dozens that are up there in no particular order. Do I have to name one or can I name two? You can name as many as you want. Okay. I most recently read a book. It's an autobiography by Ellen Burstyn, and I'm obsessed with it. I'm obsessed with the book. I'm obsessed with Ellen Burstyn now. It just spoke to me on so many levels because, uh, uh, do you know who Ellen Burstyn is? I was just going to ask you, educate me and all the other ignorant people who are listening to this. (laughs) So this is the book right here. Unfortunately, I like carried it around so much that I mistakenly chopped off the front cover. So Ellen Burstyn is an actress and she plays the mom in The Exorcist. Okay, yep. So that's her probably her biggest film, but then a lot of people know her from Requiem for a Dream, which was like a big film in like 2003. And what's so funny is that actually happened a little bit on kind of like a self-healing, emotional, spiritual journey. And I remember that I had run across someone online being like, oh, she has a great autobiography. But there was nothing in there that he, that it was about anything other than her life. And I went on Amazon and I put it on my wish list or whatever. Because when I searched for it, it was like 30 bucks. And I'm like, oh God, do I really want to spend 30 bucks right now on some random autobiography? So I table it. And then like a month ago, I was like, actually, I'm kind of in the mood to read that. And I ordered it. And I didn't realize that the um, subtitle, which unfortunately got ripped off is lessons in becoming myself. And that's kind of like the journey that I've been on. I didn't come from the best background or the best childhood. And part of the fallout of that was not really having a sense of self. And her autobiography has been amazing because not only is she telling a story about her life, but she's literally giving you the blueprint for how she went on that same journey. She pretty much was on the same journey of someone who didn't really have a great childhood where, you know, her sense of self was denied or shamed or ridiculed, how she went into acting and then just the whole thing just repeatedly was just throwing these nuggets of wisdom like over and over and over again and it rang so true and it rang so genuine it wasn't oh let me put in this bs to sell more copies it was like oh this woman knows what she's talking about so she's not just name dropping all the you know famous actors she slept with she's really about sharing her own spiritual healing personal development story Yep. And she is also name dropping the people she slept with, not name dropping, but like she goes there and it's, it gets really raw at times where you're like, man, she does not look like the good guy here, but she's owning it. She's like, this is what happened. Sounds like I'm going to have to spend $30 on Amazon when we get up. (laughs) (laughs) It's really good. It's really, really good. No, I do you like reading autobiographies. Oh, I love autobiographies and maybe more so from people that I don't necessarily know. It's obviously awesome to read like a autobiography from someone you've admired your whole life, but you almost go in with like these big expectations. And so mm-hmm. sometimes it's cool to just get to know someone who haven't had that much contact with or don't know that much about. So when you say nuggets of wisdom, 
Are there any that are fresh on the top of your mind from that book? Well, you know what's so funny? So part of my self-help journey is journaling. And on my to-do list is to go through this book and write down some of the things because there there were just so many things that she wrote. And I'm just doing a quick look now because I, I do remember that I had underlined some things once I realized that it just was like one after the other. Let's see. Mm. Okay. So she writes to be whole, which is my goal. I must pull my demons from their lair and embrace them, even love them. That one sentence is spoke to me for sure. Okay. Can you repeat that sentence one more time? Yes. Okay. To be whole, which is my goal, I must pull my demons from their lair and embrace them, even love them. Ooh, it's resonating with me because I think that was a big part of or has been a big part of my journey as well to just explore my own dark sides, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Resonates with me. It, it resonated with me on so many levels. Okay. So Ellen Burstyn, Life Lessons in Becoming yourself basically yes. That's just, okay i think we can all need some help with that so mm -hmm. i'll put an amazon link in the show notes or something like that okay so alan burson what else what other book is coming up another book that i i go to time and again is uh the color purple by alice walker i've actually never read it or seen the movie or seen the play or anything which i'm think i should be ashamed to admit here But tell me a little bit about the general theme of the book. Well, your homework assignment for tonight is to go on HBO Max and watch the movie. It's one of the rare movies that I think is the book and movie are par, um, on par with each other. I mean, obviously, the, you know, the book is the written word and it, there's a little bit more to it. But just both works of art, the movie and the book, moved me in very, very deep ways. And I'm not one to really get emotional, which is something that I'm trying to like, get to the bottom of and, and figure out. But that book does it and that movie does it. It just taps into the human experience like no other book I've ever, I've ever read. I think similar to Ellen Burstyn's autobiography, the main character is someone who has just been beaten down and just, you know, is the pure underdog, right? Just has no one in their lane, but through the story comes into herself and is, and believes in herself. Do you typically mix it up when you read books, both fiction, nonfiction? So to be honest with you, I used to be a really big reader growing up. And even in, in my 20s, and then something happened, or nothing happened, but in my 30s, it just kind of fell off. I mean, there's lots of reasons for it, and I, I kind of have an understanding of what, what happened, but I like didn't read a book for years, for five or more years. Even when I became aware of it and like started to kind of like purposely be like, oh, uh, in 2021, I want to read three books it still wasn't really making a dent. Like I still, it still felt like a chore. I still was distracted. There was still just something kind of like holding me back. But as I've done work on myself, it's naturally come back. And and like I said, like even that book with, with Ellen Burstyn, it like came into my life, like very serendipitously. Like there was no reason for me to get this book. I was not an Ellen Burstyn fan prior. It just came to me. So these past two years alone, I've probably read like, 20 books just because it it happened. And I do mix it up. I kind of tend to lean nonfiction, but I do enjoy fiction as well. I think a part of what happened is smartphones and our attention span just dramatically dropping. I mean, I used to love to read long articles and blog posts and books. And then you go to like a a one minute video and then then it's the 15 second reels and then it's the seven second reels and you're just like wow i can't pay attention anymore for extended periods of time it's really scary 
No, I think you're right. And it's funny because, yeah, I, when I think about the timeline, I actually didn't get a smartphone until 2016 or 2015, some sometime around there. And that's that definitely was around the time period when I just wasn't reading anymore. I'm curious, how does one get into becoming a history teacher? Because I think history, if you're taking it in high school, is probably notoriously seen as a boring subject that people have to take, right? For the average student. And if people look at you, they I don't think they would say history nerd, you know? So how did that mm. happen? Before I answer that, what was your feelings about history as a high school student? I think kind of like a necessary evil. Cause I, I think I was more of a science and math person. I was more interested in that. And I think maybe the way it was presented and the way it was being tested, it just seemed tedious in the sense that like, Oh, I know I'm going to have to memorize this. And so that's, mm -hmm. I think what, what made it less attractive. And now I regret that I didn't pay more attention or that I didn't give it more energy because yeah. now now I'm so interested in history. And now it's hard to find good sources. I wish I had my old textbooks from back in high school in, in Germany. I, I think that's one of the things I'm most, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to be found out how little I know about history. <laughs> but yeah, that, that was it. I think just the way it was presented because it wasn't about getting the kids actually curious. It was more like just someone talking at you and then you were expected to memorize it for the test. Yeah. You know, that's the type of history that I tend to avoid, or at least that's the the approach to history that I, I try to avoid where it's like, I don't care about names or dates because at the end of the day, we can all Google that shit. We, we do not need to memorize the names and the dates. We have Google now. So I try to present it much more in a... I just think of it as storytelling. It's a narrative. What made the, what made this person do that? Why did this happen? But as a high school student, I think, or, or as a grade school student, I think I liked history because I understood it quickly of like, oh, it's a story. So like, you know, it's just this happened, this happened, this happened. And if you understood the big picture, you didn't have to go crazy memorizing things. And I usually try to convey that to my students where it's like, if someone asks you what a movie's about, you don't talk to them for two and a half hours, giving them the whole dialogue. You digest it for them. You give them the main idea. And, and that's kind of how I always viewed history. It was like, oh, well, it's just a story. You know, it's, it's easy to kind of like digest and figure out. But what led me to the teaching career is in college... I chose history as my major and I chose it because I really had no guidance. Like I had no idea what the fuck I was doing in college because I had no framework. Both my parents didn't go to college. I had no one in my family that ever went to college. So the idea of college was so foreign to me. It was just something so, that you thought you were supposed to do basically, right? Yes. Like this is how you become a successful human being by going to college. 100%. And that's what our generation was fed, right? I mean, we were told that from kindergarten that like, you go to college. So when I went to college, I was so scared about flunking out because I just, I had no idea like what it was going to be. And, and we were told, and I'm sure you were told, like every high school teacher's favorite line was, well, in college, they're going to do this and your professor is not going to put up with that. So they made it seem like it was going to be like this crazy impossible rite of passage. So I chose history because it was the one subject I didn't have to study for and I could still do well. And that was coming from a very insecure place of like, oh, well, let me just pick this thing that I won't be bad at. And it's funny because I had other strengths. I, I actually was very good at math. I was very good at science, I, I, you know, and I was good at other things. But math and science, you had to study a little bit. There's no way you can go into an AP exam and not study a little bit. But that scared me because I'm like, oh, well, if you have to study, then you're dumb. You're not good at it. So I ended up studying history. Thankfully, I had a handful of really, really, really great professors. A history professor, a psychology professor, an English professor, an anthropology professor. I actually minored in African and Asian studies. Don't ask. It just happened that way. And so with those minors, I had to take like a lot of English classes and anthropology classes and even like a dance class I ended up taking. So I had a great, 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 great experience. And I really loved my, my college experience in the college curriculum. 
So when I graduated, I had this idea of, okay, like I got a good liberal arts foundation. I can kind of do anything. And and I was open-minded to where life was going to take me. And in 2007, there were the beginnings of the recession. I remember there was start, they started talking about the housing market and all that. And then finally in 2008, when everything crashed, it didn't seem like a good idea to bank on a liberal arts degree and just see where life took me. <laughs> so <laughs> that's the reality. Before I went to college, I had the idea of becoming a teacher anyway. The only reason why I steered away from it was because studying so many things was like, oh, wow. You know, I I didn't feel as the need to be put in a box or to to be on one particular road. But when the recession hit, I felt the need to kind of like, okay, well, let me go in this direction now. Over Mm -hmm. the years or while you studied it, is there, because history is vast, obviously. Is there a Mm -hmm. particular continent time period that's Mm -hmm. your favorite that you are most knowledgeable about that you love teaching the most? I love U.S. history. I I love U.S. history. And it's funny because for the past 10 years, I actually taught this really weird elective, not weird in and of itself, but just not something that you think high schools would offer. But I taught a class that was pretty much 20th century world history but with a focus on Russia, China, Cuba, those three countries. And it was not a class that I designed. So another teacher kind of founded it. But then when I inherited it, of course, I did my own research and I did my own things and I put my own spin on it. So I learned a lot and I really enjoyed teaching those classes. But the more I learned about Russia and China, the more I like drew parallels with U.S. history and and just the whole idea of, of empire and the growth of empire and all those things. And so when I went back to teaching U.S. history, I just had a totally different approach to U.S. history and understanding. And I absolutely love U.S. history. I find it fascinating, fascinating. And I think it's the funnest to teach. Does U.S. history go all the way back to Columbus or where does it start really get fascinating to you? Mm. I mean, I I do think the entire thing is fascinating, the entire thing. And that's where it's like, okay, and and unfortunately, you know, your teacher back in the 90s, my teacher back in the 90s, we are saddled with a lot of restraints, time, sometimes political pressure. I mean, that's been a reality for sure the past few years. There are a lot of constraints that make it difficult to like really approach history in an interesting way and present history as it should be told. And probably the biggest constraint is the fact that unfortunately, a lot of it is test-based. So when something is test-based, it's so hard to present nuance. And that's the overall motif of history is like how nuanced and complex everything is. And when it's that nuanced and complex, I think many teachers, myself included, are sometimes hesitant to go there because at the end of the year, There's one test with one question about this topic, and it's going to be this answer. And you're afraid to provide that nuance, but the nuance is where the magic is. I mean, one, it's so big, and I'm sure the curriculum dictates to a certain extent which time periods you focus on and all of that stuff. But yes, I think maybe you're getting a little bit of a, a conflict of interest almost. You want to provide the nuance, and at the same time, you want to set your students up for success to pass their exams and to so they can go to college and all of that. I've never thought about that. I just know from my ex-wife that teaching is an incredibly challenging profession. And obviously, teachers, especially high school teachers in New York City don't get enough recognition and appreciation. So let me give you some appreciation here. It is challenging because I'm literally like, I've been up since 530 and I'm feeling it right now where I'm like, oh. Because I think sometimes people will just be like, oh, whatever. Teachers have a short day. They get all these, they get all this vacation, all this time off. But I mean, the lesson planning and then depending on what kind of school you teach and just the your patients being tested and all of that. And then you still trying to care about these people as little human beings who are trying to get out of high school and start their life. So it's a lot. But it's also interesting, sort of that connection. I just had this thought that 
with history and big moments often being based on an individual's decision or how they grew up, maybe their biography. There's obviously sometimes a clear line between good and evil. But I think, like you said, it gets nuanced sometimes where maybe one person may see someone as a hero and someone else may see them as a villain. Is that something that 100%, fascinates you? 100%. And that's, that is the type of issue that I try to approach within my class where it's, we've been sold a bill of lies with the Hollywood version of, of events. And that's what, that's what we love, you know, especially I think Americans who are raised on television and movies. We love the Hollywood version of events where there's a beginning, middle and end. There's a good guy and a bad guy, and there's a happy ending, right? That's, that's usually how things are presented. And like history is never that way or very rarely that way, right? I'm probably going to butcher the history. But one thing that fascinated me this year, because every year there's something new that comes up that I'm like, man, how did I never look into this or think of it this way? I don't love teaching the 13 colonies. To me, it's just like, okay, the 13 colonies and Sam Adams and George Washington. And it's just not always the funnest. But I ended up doing a lesson on something called Bacon's Rebellion, which fascinated me because I don't remember learning it when I was in high school. And what was fascinating about Bacon's Rebellion is that in the Virginia colony, you had this very, very unequal social hierarchy, social economic system hierarchy, because essentially when you would come over from England, if you were wealthy enough to bring people with you as indentured servants, they would give you more land. So the more people you brought over, the more land you got. So what you have in Virginia is a small group of people who own a ton of land. And then a lot of the indentured servants, when they were free of their servitude, would get no land, get the worst land, or they died. So you had this really unequal society of these huge landowners, some indentured indentured servants who had very little land, and then you had this growing population of indentured servants who had no land. What ended up happening was that some of these landless men wanted to go out west to claim more Native American land to settle because the landowners were not redistributing any of their land. The landowners don't want to start a war with the Native Americans because that's going to upset their status quo and probably get England on their back. Bacon started a rebellion of landless peasants, some slaves. So an interracial rebellion of poor against rich, but the rich don't want to fight against the Native Americans. So like I pose the question to the students, if this were a Hollywood movie, who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? And go into the reading and, you know, take out details of who the good guys are, who the bad guys are. And then I asked them to flip it. Okay, now you're making a movie, but you have to have the, you know, this group be the, the good guys, this group be the bad guys. Which pieces of evidence are you going to focus on? Because the evidence is there. You just have to cherry pick which evidence you're going to present and which evidence you're not going to present. So I just thought that History was so interesting because it's like, I don't know who the good guy is. I don't know who the bad guy is. I just thought of Fox News versus, you know, Rachel Maddow, because they will look at the same evidence and present two completely different stories. So it it happens like live in action on the news. And then it happens in history that way. So that's fascinating. Were you totally obsessed with Hamilton, the musical when it came out? Okay. (laughs) Okay, so this is a good story. No, but I, so I've since watched it on Disney Plus and it's fantastic. So it it is fantastic. But I came to see it through a school event, so to speak. So New York was sponsoring that X amount of high schools could go for a private showing during the day. So our school was picked. So we got to go. Great. I think we were bringing a hundred or even two, I think we brought like 200 students. And so it was me, I want to say like five or six other teachers, maybe 10 total and like 200 students. And we had to travel there via public transportation. (laughs) I mean, I get scared by a group of five teenagers. So (laughs) I'm trying to picture 200 of them and five of you trying to wrangle them into (laughs) submission. Into public transportation. And, you know, we're commuting from an outer borough and, you know, people from outer boroughs are not very often comfortable 
in Manhattan on public transportation. It's kind of new to them, even though technically they're city dwellers. So there was that added, this is a learning experience of how to actually travel in Manhattan. So I actually had a group of students who were future nursing students. So they're like nursing students are very on the ball, very nurturing and caring, you know, what, what you hope future nurses are going to be. And they knew that I was worried about one student that I just, I was like, I know something's going to happen with this student. And so the whole way there, they were like, we got you, don't worry, nothing's going to happen. We're, we're with you. We get off the four train at 42nd Street which is its own craziness, and get off the train, that student is nowhere to be found. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yes. For the people who've never been to New York, the four train at 42nd Street spits you out into Grand Central, which is one of the busiest hubs, one of the busiest mm -hmm. places in the entire city. So if you lose mm -hmm. someone, it's really hard to find them. It's just to provide yes. context for those who don't know. So, okay, continue. The student is missing. Yeah. Once those doors open and close and that train is gone, If a student doesn't know, like, it, there's just so many moving parts. There's so many variables. So we got off the train. We realized he's missing. And this is the type of kid that he was that, like, I know my eyes were on him. I know that 10 other eye, pairs of eyes were on this kid. So my, my life flashes before my eyes. I literally see the New York Post headline the next day talking about how incompetent I am. And... I went into full-fledged panic mode. Here's here's Snowball. She wants to say hi. Hi, Snowball. Aww. You're mad that I'm in your seat? I mean, we always love a black cat named Snowball. <laughs> I know. So I can't take credit. It's my friend Michael's kitty. Thank God. Thank God that within a minute of this sheer panic, sheer panic, he was spotted by another student. He pretty much just bolted right up the stairs as we were all because you know you get off the train and you do a head count so we're all like following that order of events and he had already kind of sprinted up the staircase to get out and uh, a student had kind of spotted him so it ended okay but all that to say that when i got to the theater my adrenaline was through the roof i was still coming down from the adrenaline rush of my life flashing before my eyes so i'm sure there was an amazing performance i'm sure that it was awesome I was not there. All you remember from that trip was that you almost lost was a that. student. Yes. And then the entire time there was just thinking about how are we going to get back without that same thing happening? I, I didn't really enjoy Hamilton. And like, I feel bad about it because I know there's lots of people who never got to go in person because it was so outrageously expensive. But I enjoyed watching it on Disney Plus because with the subtitles, so many things were able to, to hit. I've actually never seen it because, again, I'm, I have big, big gaps in history, but maybe that might be a good way to fill some mm -hmm. of those gaps. You know, those videos on Instagram where a guy will interview people in Times Square and prey on them not being the most educated and ask them like relatively easy questions. I'm always like, oh, my God, if somebody caught me and asked me any questions about you as presidents, I would look so stupid. I know but nothing. would you? Because... You would probably know more than some Americans. I don't know, because I feel like history back in high school in Germany was very Europe focused. I remember there was a lot about the Holocaust, as there should be, and then the French Revolution and sort of those European wars. And I can't even tell you if U.S. history was a solid part of the curriculum. So I feel like the little bit of knowledge that I have is more from just being a person who reads and, you know, watches yeah. trivia shows. But I think that the more recent years, I could tell you, but the beginning of it all is very blurry for me. <laughs> I bought this book. It maybe has 150 pages and it's a brief history of Germany. So I want to dig into that because... I know the big stuff about German history. I mean, I grew up with German guilt. That's always something that fascinated me. What's your take on this? That when I came here, I was so fascinated with the fact that white Americans don't walk around with this guilt about slavery. Like we as Germans walk around with guilt about the Holocaust. Why do you think mm. that is? 
That is a great question. And I don't know if I can even answer it in like a short form, but like there's something about American history and American culture. And I can only speak from it as from an American point of view and from someone that studied American history. So I don't know if this is universal. I don't know if, if there's anything in common with other cultures and other countries, but there is something about American history where we do tend to have like this cultural amnesia of something happening. And then we just figure out a way to not remember it or remember it in a completely whitewashed way. So even like, you know, it was just recently Martin Luther King's holiday. Martin Luther King was a very reviled man while he was alive. People hated him. I mean, that's why he was assassinated. He got assassinated. And people forget that that's how Americans felt about him. That's how white Americans felt about him during that time period. But now, obviously, and deservedly so, that he, you know, deserves his own holiday and, and recognition. But because of that, it's like that context of putting him up on a pedestal, which, you know, he's earned, almost makes us forget the fact that he was considered to be the worst person in the world to most white Americans at that time period. Yeah, You know what I'm saying? So like the fact that, that holiday, which is important, it, in a weird way, it, er, it erases the nuance of what he w experienced as a Black leader and a Black American during that time period. Mm -hmm. So we yeah. just have this weird cultural amnesia in America where it's like, oh, well, that's in the past. What are you talking about? Some of, I think, the Germany having to accept guilt and deal with it was that Germany lost the war and the world was watching, right? This... Mm. A horrible crime against humanity on this unimaginable scale had just happened. And then finally, that person gets defeated, the regime gets defeated. And then the world is watching of like, what is this country going to do with this now, right? So there had to be, you know, people had to be convicted in court and be made an example of and there had to be reparations. And I feel like that didn't happen in American um, history with the, yeah. you know, the crimes against Native Americans and the crimes yeah. against Black people, because the country was always seen as a success story, right? No one ever had to take responsibility. Like, oh, yeah, we did that. That's how we became successful. I don't know. It's fascinating. I mean, I do think the United States is at a crucial point where I do think there needs to be some reckoning or else it, it is going to be something that paves the way for, I don't know, our downfall as, as an empire. And not to paint it so doom and gloom, but I'm thinking in like broad historical stokes of like when you study empires and you study civilizations, the things that brought it to power and success can be the things that bring it down. And I think America does need to reckon for some of some of its transgressions. I'm actually fascinated to hear, you know, how and why Germany did things a little differently, because maybe that's a blueprint for us. I don't know. Maybe it is. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't all done perfectly. You know, if I'm sure if you ask a Holocaust survivor or a Jewish person, they might have a different perspective. But there was a massive reckoning. I, I very much grew up with you're not proud of the German flag. I grew up with like, if you have a German flag in your backyard, you're a Nazi. I grew up with that. And then it wasn't, I think, until 2006 when Germany hosted the Soccer World Cup and it was this magical summer and it was all positive and perfect weather and just this perfect tournament and this young German team did well. It was the first time that, that it was okay to be proud to be German that summer. And so something kind of shifted. It's interesting because I think of Germany as a great country and I'm proud to be from there. But then I grew up with this, we fucked up, right? And that's always been with me. So yeah, well, we could talk about that for hours and try to solve the world's problems, but I don't want to keep you yeah. too long. So if you're down for one final question that I ask all my podcast guests, I would love to ask you a question. Sure. Okay. So the question is, what is your greatest gift to the world? No. Oh. That's a really, <laughs> that's a heavy question. What's my greatest gift to the world? Whew. How do other people answer that? People have answered that they make people feel safe, that mm. they build community, 
So things like that. I like that question because especially when you're on a a person who's self-aware and trying to work on themselves, I think we tend to be more comfortable talking about the things that we want to work on than the things that make us great. So I like challenging people a little bit with what's your greatest gift? No, that's a good question. And it's it's funny, like when you get the, like I heard a question the other day that was, what was the best day of your life? And it's like, whoa, because how often do you really think about that? Even pondering that question itself feels like, did I do enough? Is my best day behind me? Is my best day ahead of me? Like, it's very like, whoa. So what is my greatest gift to the world? I still feel like I am discovering it and nurturing it. But I do feel like my greatest gift to the world is rooting for the underdog. I love that. Do you feel like that shows up um, a lot in your profession as a teacher? It has. And I've been leaning into it more because I find that that's what brings me joy. That's what brings me satisfaction. That's what brings me connection. But I, I can kind of see it all along that I'm like, okay, I I didn't realize that that's what it was, but that's what it was. And that's kind of how I've been trying to lean into what I do now, but definitely rooting for the underdog. How does that show up in your personal life? Mm, That's a great question. (laughs) You're good at this. How it's shown up in my personal life is a little bit more complex because unfortunately I think at times that has kind of drawn me to people who I felt like I could nurture or save or fix and I'm not saying that that's that was a conscious thought because it it wasn't a conscious thought but looking back now I think that it has drawn me to that what I'm now working on and what I've realized in the last three years of being single consciously single is that sometimes I think that propensity to do that was because I needed to do that for myself. And I didn't realize that, you know, oh, I, know. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's coming off cheesy or coming off, but that that's the God honest truth that I think I was drawn to that because I need a cheerleader. I need uh, someone to believe in me, you know, and what I realized is that like, well, I can do that for, I've done that successfully for other people. I can do that for myself. I think that's a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much for being open to this and for giving me an hour of your time. It was an absolute pleasure. All right. Thank you. 